We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're looking at how the Thessalonians responded to the preaching of the gospel when Paul and Silas and Timothy came to them. And we have looked at the gospel coming to them through Paul and his associates, but in the power of the Spirit. That's our greatest need. I am completely, completely convinced that we don't just need preachers. We do need preachers, but we need another to accompany the preaching. And then the word that was preached in the power of the Spirit was received by the Thessalonians. And it wasn't an easy thing for them to be converted. It was a tough time. They were going to be persecuted. And so they received the word in much affliction. And yet, the spirit that anointed the preaching anointed the hearing. They received the word in joy. Now, those two things go together. If we want to know the spirit coming upon us and the joy of the Lord filling us, the devil won't like it, and he will attack. I think we can always be encouraged when we are attacked by the evil one, because it shows that there's a measure of blessing upon the word. And then, not only did the Thessalonians receive that word, but the word then went out from them. They became transmitters of the word. And that's what the church is. The church isn't just a place where the word is preached by the preacher, or even the place where the word is received by you, the hearers. But we're all meant to spread the gospel. The mistake that we are making today is that we're delegating that to those who are paid workers. Now, there's nothing wrong with having pastors and other church workers. It's an excellent thing to have. But that doesn't mean to say that we are not to be involved either. The secret of the early church was that it was a grassroot movement. The Spirit came upon every believer, and those people lived the gospel and they gossiped the gospel. And that's what we need to be doing. So let's just read from verse 6 to the end of the chapter. This is the chain, if you like. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. What a problem to have. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath 
to come. So we left this paragraph in verse 8, where we were told that in transmitting the gospel, they, the Thessalonians trumpeted it. They echoed it. The gospel reverberated from Thessalonica, not just to the rest of Macedonia, a region the size of Wales, but to the rest of Greece and to the rest of the parts of Europe where Paul was preaching. And Paul said, I feel redundant. I feel redundant wherever I go. People tell me about what's happened in Thessalonica. And when they're explaining to me what's happened there, they're telling me the gospel. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If we heard from North Wales by the end of this evening that God had come down in power and that people had turned in great numbers from their idols and turned to Jesus Christ, the living God, and that spread like wildfire. They didn't have social media. They didn't have mobile phones. It was word of mouth. Now, listen. We don't trumpet ourselves. We don't blow our own trumpets. It's easy to do that, isn't it? Uh, there are celebrity preachers around, and there are some Christians. All they're doing is blowing their own trumpets. Oh, no. We're sounding forth the word of the gospel. We're not interested in whistling the latest fad we're not interested in the whistles of politics there's a place for politics but the church isn't here for that we're just whistling down the wind if it's christ we're trumpeting forth then that reverber reverberates and it reverberates into eternity now we're going to look this evening at what exactly people are telling Paul about the Thessalonians' response to the gospel. Somebody has called verses 9 and 10 the best definition of conversion in the whole of the Bible. What does it mean to turn to Jesus Christ? Well, here, in a nutshell, you've got it, and it's actually only one sentence, verses 9 and 10. But this sentence contains everything that true conversion includes. Do you notice three components? In every conversion, there are three things that we do. Do you notice the verbs? Turning from idols. How you turned from idols to serve the living and true God and then to wait for his son from heaven I don't know if we'll finish it tonight but those three things we want to look at how can I be sure my conversion is genuine well there's a turning there's a serving and there's a waiting let's look first at the turning how you turn to God from idols turning do you know what the word for turning is you should all know it's repentance that's what to turn means the greek word for repentance is metanoia and it actually means a change of mind now when we hear that we think ah i just changed my mind uh, i 
went into uh, a supermarket the other day and I was going to buy a curry, but I bought a Chinese instead. I changed my mind, something superficial. But this word metanoia, change of mind, when it comes to repentance, isn't superficial. It's a change of outlook. It's a complete change of how one sees oneself, how one sees God, how one sees the world around. It's a radical change of mind. And because your whole outlook is different, your whole life is now changed. So if you just peruse through the book of Acts, we're not going to look at every single verse that has repentance, but it appears again and again and again. So let me just give you some references. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Chapter 9. See, you've, you can keep up with me here. Chapter 9. Verse 35, Peter said, repent, repent. And chapter 11, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned, the same thing, turned to the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 15, verse 15. Paul and Barnabas are preaching. And what do they say? Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea and all things in them. And then one more reference. Chapter 26. Verses 18 and 20. This is the commission that God has given to Paul, the apostle, What did he say to the Apostle Paul? Verse 18, to open their eyes in order that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified. So turning, repentance, it's there. We turn from idols. We turn from idols. Now, idol worship was rampant in the New Testament. These Thessalonians were Gentiles, so they had trade guilds. You know, trade guilds? Just as we would have trade unions, trade guilds would be a much stronger uh, group. And each trade guild would have its own idol. And people would be required to pay allegiance to that idol. And so if a person was converted, they had to break off from that. And as a result, they suffered economically. That was one of the forms of persecution that happened in the early church. Now, sometimes Christians today, uh, they have to suffer in the workplace, don't they? But this was uh, much, much more serious. Now, there are parts of the world today where people still have idols. I remember going to a tribal uh, village in the hills of Andhra Pradesh. And we walked down into the village and there were a group of ladies doing incantations. 
as we were going down. And they were worshipping idols. Thessalonica. This is very poignant, I find. Thessalonica was just south of Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus, about 50 miles north. And Mount Olympus was where the pantheon of Greek gods lived, apparently. So this dwelling place of idols cast its shadow upon Thessalonica. And my friends, we may not have idols of wood or stone. We may not be involved in incantations in our lives. But isn't there a pantheon of idols overshadowing our society today? Isn't there? They may not be wood or stone, but they may be metal. They may be paper. Let let, let me just read. Uh, Tim Keller is very helpful here. He's a very good writer, Tim Keller. This is what he says. Each culture is dominated by its own set of idols. Each one has its shrines, whether office towers, gyms, studios, or stadiums, where sacrifices must be made in order to procure the blessing of the good life and to ward off disasters. What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievements but these same things? And then he gives some examples. We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women and men today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern about their body image. Another example, we may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are said to uh, be the most important thing in life, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family to achieve a higher place in business and gain more prestige. My friends, we turn from idols as well. And I can't tell you what your idols are. But we all have them. Uh, When I was converted, I have often reminded you that it was mountains. I lived for mountains. An idol is something that your whole life revolves around. An idol is something that you worship. You may not actually physically bow down to it, but it's something that you put your whole trust in. And if that something is no longer there, you no longer have a purpose to live. And for me, it was mountains. Mountains. And when I was converted, for months, I couldn't climb a mountain. Now, that sounds ridiculous, I know. But for me, because that was an idol, I had to cut it off. For somebody else here, it might have been something different. You turned from idols and turned to. We're in danger of making the turning, the repentance, into something legalistic. We can think of turning from things, but that's not the point in the end, is it? It's turning from empty idols to God. This is 
evangelical repentance. It's turning to Jesus Christ. It's repentance unto life. Uh, this is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines it. I like this. It's like a Sunday dinner. It feeds your soul. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. You see, it's not just that we're beating ourselves up and trying in our own strength to turn from our idols, but the mercy of God in Christ has a drawing power by the apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. And with grief and hatred of our sin, we turn from it unto God. And we turn with full purpose and endeavor after new obedience. That's what happened when we were first converted. We were putting our trust in something. We were living for that something. And we were convicted. And we realized that we were making a big mistake. And we saw Christ as the one that we stood in need of. And we turned. We cut off our ties with that idol. And we turned willingly to Jesus Christ. And we bowed the knee to him and we said, Lord, I want you to save me. Lord, I want to follow you. Lord, I am no longer my own. I now belong to you. I'm the property of Jesus. But we didn't stop. The Thessalonians didn't stop turning on the day of their conversion. They were now walking in a new direction. And their whole life now meant carrying on in that direction. And none of us have lived a perfect Christian life. We are all tending to go back, can't we? Just like the children of Israel, wanting the garlic. <laughs> I don't know why the garlic, but the garlic of Egypt, hankering after it and drawing back. But when we feel the tug of the world, and we may even go back into the world, grace draws us again. And so our life is going in a different direction. But it's like that, isn't it? It's like that. So are you still repenting? Am I still repenting? What idols are you struggling with now? It may not be the same idols as when you were first saved. We, we, we can so easily judge younger Christians... And say they shouldn't be doing that. Well, all right. But what about you? What about me? We still have things that we shouldn't be doing. So what are we turning from now? Martin Luther very famously uh, nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg Cathedral. And... That was a strong statement of justification by faith alone. But one of the theses was this. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Let me read it again. Our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Haven't we drifted? Haven't we allowed other things to crowd in? Idols. Idols. So that's one thing. Turning. 
turning. Keep on turning. We're going in a new direction. Don't look back. Press on to the higher calling of our Lord and Saviour. Let's encourage one another in doing that. We haven't got far to go. How many of us here have lived most of our lives now? But then there is the second component, serving. Now, the contrast between the idols and whom we turn to and serve is astounding. Listen to him. We have turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. Paul says, idols, they're as dead as a dodo. Who have you turned to? You've turned to one who is alive. Praise God. I serve a risen saviour. He's in the world today. You can't say that of an idol. I read from Psalm 115. Did you catch the humour in that psalm? I'm sure you see God uses humour to get us to see sense sometimes. They're idols, he says, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So whatever your idol may be, it's the same. It's the work of human hands. It's a creature, not the creator. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throats. It's not just that they can't speak words. They can't even grunt. And those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Isn't that true? Whatever we live upon, ultimately, it can't satisfy our innermost desires. Whether we're living for, I don't know, our job. A person in the end becomes miserable if they're just living on their jobs. And even if they've reached the top of their career, I've heard of people, they've retired, and then in a few months they're dead because they lived for their work. Uh, what about living uh, for pleasure? We're a hedonistic society today, more pleasure-centered than any time before. And yet depression is the endemic. People live for their families. It's family before anything else. And yet if you make family your idol, your family in the end will make you miserable. Whatever it is, whatever it is. Because they're never meant to be trusted in. It's only one person we are to live for, ultimately. And that's God. We've been created to serve God. All these other things that become idols, they're not bad things often. They're good gifts from God. But what we do is turn them and make these good things that God has given to us in order to enjoy life and in order to serve him. We make them gods, don't we? And we are miserable then. Uh, serve is an interesting word. 
It means serve as a bondservant, serve as a slave. Any idol will enslave us. Jesus Christ is a willing master. How did he put it? Come unto me, all that are weary and heavy laden. Are you weary because of your idols this evening? Come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke. Yoke is what they would use uh, to uh, put on the neck of oxen. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And he goes on to say, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's not what idols are like. And I remember once going to an Indian restaurant and uh, the man uh, working there, uh, one of us got talking to him. And he asked the man working there, what are all those things there behind the till? What are all those things? And he said, ooh, they are my idols. They are my idols. And, and he had a number of them. And they looked beautiful. They looked beautiful. He was proud of his idols. I don't know if he put his trust in them. He might have thought bad luck would come upon him if he did anything wrong to them. And then the person that we were with said, let me tell you about the true and the living God. I like that. I like that. I, I've been in homes in India and I've seen the same things. People have their idols. And if you talk to some Hindus about Jesus Christ and if you tell them, ah, yes, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God? They will nod their heads and say yes. And what they mean by that is Jesus Christ is a God, just like all these other hundreds and thousands of gods. It's as if Jesus Christ is in the same place as their idols. But Paul says, oh no, these idols are dead. They can't do anything. There's only one true and living God, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one God, and that is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to bear witness tonight that he is true, he is faithful, he is alive. We had a good prayer meeting one evening uh, when somebody was led to break into song, I serve a living saviour. He's real, he's real. One of the most moving experiences I had in India was standing in Sarampore, a suburb of Calcutta where William Carey was teaching in the college there. William Carey went to India in the 19th century as a missionary and he worked in uh, that part of India for six, seven years before he saw his first convert. It wasn't like Thessalonica. Paul saw his first convert from the first Sabbath day, but poor Carey had to wait seven or eight years sowing the seeds of the gospel. And then a man, Krishnapal, his translator, came to faith. And Krishnapal rejected all of his idols, hundreds of them, and he embraced Jesus Christ. And the moving experience was standing at the spot where William Carey baptized Krishnapal in the Ganges 
I wouldn't baptize anybody in the Ganges. It's so dirty. But what a glorious experience that must have been. And Krishna Pal wrote, didn't he? We sang his words. O thou, my soul, forget no more the friend who all thy miseries bore. I couldn't say that of my idols. Let every idol be forgot. But O my soul, forget him not. Where are your idols when difficulties come? Where are your idols when you suffer with serious disease? Where are your idols when loved ones die? Where are your idols when disappointments come? Where are your idols then? They're nowhere. But here is one who is with you then and who sticks closer than any human. I want to bear witness to Jesus Christ tonight. This isn't just some academic thing. He's real. I know he lives because he lives in my heart. And many of you can say the same. You can say he has been there for me. What good are your idols when you face the ultimate problem, the problem of sin? What good are your idols? Can your idols give you peace with God? Can your idols give you forgiveness of sins? People, as it were, use their idols as good luck charms, but they don't give any peace of conscience. But what about the true and the living God? Listen, here is Krishna Pal again. Jesus, for you, a body takes. Your guilt assumes on that cross. Your fetters breaks. Discharging all your dreadful debts. Can you such love forgets? You can't, can you? He's paid the debts so that we could go to heaven. He has borne our sin. No other idol can do that. No other religion offers that. What God amongst the gods is like unto our God? Who is a pardoning God like thee? Who has grace so rich and free? And when you think about satisfaction, what did the Rolling Stones sing? I can't get no satisfaction. That's the anthem of the 60s. Right down, as we heard on Wednesday night, to Generation. Is it Generation Z now? I can't keep up. I know it's a cliche, but Jesus Christ satisfies. My deepest longings. Only God can fill that God-shaped hole. Only God. Can you, with sin beset, such charms, such matchless charms. I don't need any other charms. I don't need any incantations. All I need is the name of Jesus Christ. 
So if you ever go to India, go to Serampore and stand at the spots where William Carey baptised Krishna Pal and say, I know the same saviour that Krishna Pal came to believe in and I can say the same as he said. Well, I've got to come to a conclusion, but uh, I mentioned this morning two friends I had in Bible College from Myanmar, Burma, as it used to be called, and John Stotts. He was a minister in London in All Souls Langham Place. He received a letter from a missionary who was in Burma, and he was serving amongst the tribal people in Burma. And this is how they put it. You see, there are some missionaries who are still confronting this idol worship that the New Testament's uh, church had to deal with. And uh, Klaus Peter would be an example, I think, uh, the man I mentioned last Sunday. But this is how the missionary put it, writing to John Stott. We explained to them the pure, simple gospel and Christ's lordship over the devil and all evil forces after which they were counseled to confess and forsake their evil deeds, the repenting, and turn to Christ Jesus as their Saviour and Lord. With brokenness and tears and guilt, they responded. Then we burned up the charms and omelets and took a wood-cutting knife and broke down a spirit's house made of bamboo and wood, claiming the lordship of Jesus Christ and saying, singing Christ's victory songs and putting all of ourselves under the blood of the Lamb of God and under the power of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful, wonderful. Only the power of Christ can break the hold of an idol. Nothing else can. Nothing. And if we are being dragged again into idolatry, not in the sense of tribal people, but in crowding out Jesus Christ from our hearts. Only the power of the blood of Jesus Christ can deliver us from it. May he speak to us again. May we be real with him again. May, may we say, as we sang in another hymn, the dearest idol I have known, whatever it is, Lord, whatever it is for me, I can't point the finger at another Christian. I've got to ask you, Lord, to search me. I'm putting myself under your word, Lord, and I'm asking you to point your finger at me. I'm not asking if it's just something outward. Maybe it's my heart. Lord, just show me. And then, Lord, the dearest idol, whatever it is, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Let me give you a promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. If you turn to Jesus Christ for the first time, or if you're turning to him afresh in repentance after drifting, let me tell you, you don't become a monk, right? We don't renounce all the good gifts of God. Oh no, we can get sucked in to the worst idol then, the idol of self. What happens is when we bow the knee and accept Jesus Christ as the sole, sole owner 
of our hearts. Do you know what he does? He then trusts us with his gifts and we can enjoy them to his glory. Uh, I'll finish, I'll wind down with this. I know they're dangerous words for a preacher, but when I broke with the mountains when I was converted, I broke off with a walking club, West Wales Wanderers. It wasn't a football club, it was a walking club. West Wales Wanderers, I couldn't go with them. They went on Sundays, I couldn't join them. But in my last year, I had friends on the West Wales Wanderers and they invited me for their summer holiday to Scotland. Now, when I was a boy, I used to peruse all my walking guides and my heart's desire was to climb one of the coolings on Sky, Scour Alistair. Do you know what happened? When I went with the West Wales Wanderers to Scotland in my third year, we found ourselves on the Isle of Skye, the misty isle, in a heatwave. And I climbed Scour Alistair, and I stood on the summits, and it was amazing, because it was no longer an idol. The Lord had given me that as a gift. Whatever, whatever you're trying to re revolve your life around, renounce it and turn to Jesus Christ. And then when your life revolves around him, he will give you then all these good things and enable you to serve him using those gifts. Well, I'll stop there. We haven't got time tonight to look at the third component waiting, but turned from useless, dead idols to serve the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're going to sing, I think this sums up in very few words what I've been trying to say in many words. Jesus, Jesus, all sufficient, beyond telling is thy worth. In thy name lie greater treasures than the richest found on earth. Such abundance is my portion with my God. If you're at home, it's number 612.
Father in heaven, just deal with us. Operate in our hearts by the spirits and cause these idols which just have a hold upon us somehow uh, that we will be loosened from that and serve the only one who is trustworthy and who is life-filling and then to know all the good things. Oh, pa beth mwy awn elwyf ag eilinod gwael y llawr tystiorwyf nad yw eu cwmni i'w gystadlu a iesu mawr. Father, all the idols of this world are no company to Jesus Christ. May it be Jesus, O Lord, and then Jesus and all the good gifts that he enables us to use in order to live in this wonderful world. We thank thee. It is indeed a wonderful life. It's a wonderful saviour. And we just pray that the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with every one of us now for this time and for all eternity. Amen.